Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for a way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about malaria, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and Lyme disease. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice, so don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steven Nett as a patient at his office. All right, good evening, Steve. Good evening, Ron. So this episode is going to be coming out just before Christmas, and what else would we be talking about except things like malaria and Lyme disease when it comes to Christmas time? Because there's nothing that says Christmas like a malaria-infested mosquito. Lovely. Or a tick. Anyway, um, but, you know, not everybody's going to listen to it before Christmas. People will be listening to it afterwards, more during Lyme and tick and mosquito season. So let's start with Lyme disease. And it's become more of a concern in the past decade than it has been in previous times. Why is that? Well, first of all, Lyme disease is the most common vector-borne disease in the United States. And vector-borne is a disease that results from an infection that is transmitted to humans and other animals by blood-feeding anthropods, such as mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas. Mm -hmm. According to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the number of reported cases of Lyme disease in the United States has tripled since the late 1990s. So I know you said the last decade, but the sharp rise started a little over 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, And this is likely due to several factors, including the fact that more doctors are aware of it and, you know, how to diagnose it. But also the general public is more aware of its symptoms and is asking to be tested more often for it. Uh, Another reason for the increase is the fact that the number of counties in the northeastern and upper Midwestern United States that are considered high risk for Lyme disease increased by more than 300% between 1993 and 2012. Approximately only 30,000 cases of Lyme disease each year are reported to the CDC. But what's troubling is that this number doesn't reflect the actual number of diagnosed cases. The reason for this is that state health departments and the District of Columbia are who report the number of cases to the CDC. But the only accurate way that public health officials can track where a disease is occurring and with what frequency is through standard national surveillance. And according to recent estimates, the number of people that may contract Lyme disease each year in the United States is approximately 300,000, which is 10 times the reported amount. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, for those people that do get it, what how does that come about and what kind of symptoms do they experience and what does it actually do in the body that causes those symptoms? 
All right. Well, first of all, Lyme disease is caused by a tick bite. And, you know, just because you get bit by a tick, that doesn't mean that you're going to develop Lyme disease. There's another factor involved, and that is the tick has to be carrying a bacterial parasite called Borrelia burgdorferi, or more rarely one that's called Borrelia mayoni. The tick gets infected, you know, with the bacteria by feeding on small mammals like squirrels and mice, which happen to carry one of these parasites. Now, before I go over the effects of this particular tick bite, it's really important to go over some other very important factors related to it. Okay. So first of all, a bit of good news is that the bacteria that you get from a tick bite that causes Lyme disease is not contagious, which means Lyme disease is not contagious. And the reason for this is the fact that the period of time when you can find the bacterium in the blood is a tight window, you know, only about a few days at most. And bloodborne transmission of the bacteria, such as by transfusion, has never been reported. Great. Yeah. In addition, it's also not excreted in other body fluids, such as sweat, urine, saliva, or respiratory secretions. So that's good news, too. Very good. But then we come to the bad news about it leaving the bloodstream and going to the lymph nodes and other tissues so quickly is that it's much harder to diagnose. Uh, blood tests for early Lyme disease have a low sensitivity rate. Uh, the current test is a two-tiered antibody test that's limited in the early part of the disease because it can take three to four weeks before you produce antibodies that are detectable. So early on, the test sensitivity is only about 30 to 40%. After three to four weeks, when you've generated antibodies, then you know the test is very sensitive at determining if you're infected. So with this limitation in mind, the CDC criteria for diagnosing Lyme disease, especially early on, is a combination of symptoms, physical findings, and the possibility of exposure to infected ticks during tick season. So as you can see here, laboratory testing is not an essential criterion for the diagnosis of Lyme disease early on, simply because there are no conclusive tests for it. Mm. It makes it a lot tougher. It does. Now, typical early signs and symptoms of Lyme disease include, first of all, a small red bump that's similar to the bump that you would see from a mosquito bite. And this appears at the site of a tick bite or where you remove the tick, and this resolves normally after a few days. After that, from three to 30 days after an infected tick bite, a rash may appear. And this is one of the hallmarks of Lyme disease. Now, it doesn't show up in everyone with Lyme disease, but it does show up in a pretty high percentage, and it's called erythema migrans, which is also known as a bullseye rash because of its distinct appearance where, you know, you have an expanding red area that is clear in the center. It looks like a bullseye. Mm. Now, this rash typically expands slowly over days and it can spread to 12 inches across. And unlike other rashes or insect bites, it's usually not itchy or painful, but it may feel warm to the touch. You know, some people even develop this rash on multiple areas of their body. So you got a bunch of bullseyes all over the place. Wow. And that 12 inches is not a small area at all. You can have a few of those and you cover a huge part of the body. That's right. Now, some of the most common early symptoms of Lyme disease include fever, chills, fatigue, body aches, headache, uh, neck stiffness, and swollen lymph nodes that accompany the rash. Uh, later signs and symptoms of Lyme disease over the period of weeks and months, if it's left untreated include joint pain, and, uh, joint pain and swelling, especially in the knees. And this is also known as Lyme arthritis when it becomes chronic. 
And also there are quite a few neurological problems, including temporary paralysis of one side of your face. And that's also known as Bell's palsy, Mm -hmm. numbness or weakness in your limbs, impaired muscle movement and cognitive defects, such as impaired memory. Those are pretty serious things. That's right. Uh, You know, some of the more serious complications of Lyme, even more serious than the ones I just mentioned are encephalitis, which is a brain infection, Mm -hmm. myocarditis, which is a heart infection, and endocarditis, which is a heart valve infection. Oh, wow. All right. So this isn't something to mess around with. So if somebody has this, because of the fact that there's all these serious potential conditions and side effects and, and symptoms, what does the medical profession recommend as far as treatment and what kind of results do they get with these treatments? Well, I mean, standard medical treatment for early stage uncomplicated Lyme disease is oral antibiotics. And in general, the sooner the treatment begins, the quicker and more complete will be the recovery. The antibiotic of choice for adults and children over eight is doxycycline. But for younger children, uh, as well as pregnant and breastfeeding women, and some adults, uh, the alternative effective antibiotics include amoxicillin and cefiroxime. You know, these antibiotics, all of them are given over a course of 10 to 21 days. Now, for those who have severe complications of Lyme disease affecting the central nervous system resulting in, you know, encephalitis or the cardiovascular system uh, problems that we just talked about, including myocarditis or endocarditis, uh, then they're usually admitted to the hospital for a two to four week course of intravenous antibiotics, such as ceftriaxone. This is very effective in eliminating the infection, but, you know, it may take some time to recover from the symptoms. And you also have to take into account the fact that all antibiotics, and especially intravenous antibiotics, cause lots of side effects, including a lower white blood cell count, mild to severe diarrhea, and secondary infections or other antibiotic-resistant organisms, including yeast and fungus. Wow. All right. That's what established medicine does for Lyme disease. What alternatives do people have to those things? Well, first of all, the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure can definitely be applied to ticks and tick bites. Mm -hmm. Uh, Simple steps to prevent Lyme disease include using insect repellent and preferably a uh, non-toxic natural brand that uses essential oils instead of chemicals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Removing ticks promptly when you see them. Applying pesticides, again, non-toxic ones. Right. And reducing the tick habitat by doing things like keeping grass, weeds, and bushes trimmed and not overgrown. Okay. Now, as far as preventing tick bites from ticks that have already latched onto you or your clothing, a simple tick check after, you know, let's say going on a hike or camping should be done. And that involves checking your entire body since they can even crawl to your armpit or groin and bite you there. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you've already, you know, you have to really look closely since the ticks that are most likely to transmit the bacterium are tiny and they're about the size of a poppy seed. Ooh. Yeah. Now what's really interesting about ticks is that they don't jump or fly, but instead they do what is called questing, which means that, you know, they wait at the ends of grass or other foliage. And then when you walk by, they immediately latch onto your leg or onto your clothing. Real wow. sneaky. Yeah. That is. Now, if you happen to get bitten by one, time is of the essence. 
the reason for this is because if you notice a tick on you that's latched on and has even bitten you, as long as you remove it within 24 hours, you basically don't have anything to worry about according to the CDC. Now, why is that? Well, you know, because an infected tick typically needs to be on you, basically sucking your blood and attached to you for 36 to 48 hours. Wow. And yeah, during that time, the bacteria parasite from the tick migrates from the tick gut to its salivary glands before it can transmit the Lyme pathogen to you. So, you know, as far as removing a tick successfully, there's definitely a right way and a wrong way to do this. So this is something everybody should li listen up on. Okay. So according to the Centers for Disease Control and basically all medical website references, the correct procedure to remove a tick is to, one, use fine-tipped tweezers to grasp, the you know, to grasp the tick near the head or the mouth and as close to the skin's surface as possible. Okay. You know, there are several tick removal devices on the market, but you don't have to get anything fancy and expensive because a regular set of fine-tipped tweezers work just fine. Now, the second thing is to pull upward with steady and even pressure. Don't try to twist or jerk the tick because this can cause the mouth parts to break off and remain in the skin. But if this does happen, then, you know, try to remove, remove the mouth parts with tweezers. And if you're unable to remove the mouth easily with clean tweezers, then, you know, just leave it alone and let the skin heal. Okay. It won't be too much of an issue. And then, you know, after you remove the tick, thoroughly clean the bite area, you know, in your hands with rubbing alcohol or soap and water so they don't get infected. And, you know, always remember to never crush a live tick with your fingers. You know, dispose of a live tick by either putting it in alcohol, placing it in a sealed bag or container, uh, wrap it tightly in tape, or you can just flush it down the toilet. Do they say why not to squeeze it? They didn't say why, but I would just suspect that it, you know you can get toxin that way if it if the if it punctures you. You don't want to take a chance on that. Okay. Now, as far as alternative treatments for Lyme disease, the medical profession is adamant that antibiotics are the only proven treatment for Lyme disease. You know there are uh, alternative medicine clinics that specialize in treating people with Lyme disease, and from what I understand, they all still recommend you know the standard course of antibiotics. Hmm? But they also help people who have what's called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, where they continue to have symptoms like muscle aches, fatigue, and neurological issues. And, you know, these, case, these cases can be very complex and difficult to treat, and it requires extensive training, experience, and access to various medical and alternative modalities to work with them. So that's why I've referred these patients out to those who specialize in this. And we happen to have one of the finest clinics in the country right here in Clearwater that works with Lyme disease patients. And that is LifeWorks Wellness Center, who you can reach at lifeworkswellness.com. Okay. So that's Lyme disease. So we're going to move on to another one that people have heard of and are familiar with to some extent, at least if they've watched, you know, the Humphrey Bogart movies where he's on the boat going down the Nile and there's bugs and snakes and everything all over the place. When people are in those tropical conditions or those tropical areas, there's a potential of getting malaria. So it's thought of a disease that you only get on that kind of a excursion or whatever you want to call it. But is that really true? Is that the only time and kind of place that you get it? Well, I mean, you know, that's one possible way of getting it, but it's not just transmitted in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. 
It's also found in some South Asian and South American countries, as well as New Guinea, the Dominican Republic, and Haiti. Mm. And believe it or not, there's about 2,000 cases of malaria that are diagnosed in the United States each year. Really? Yeah. And as you would expect, nearly all of them are in travelers and immigrants returning from countries from the different areas that I just mentioned. So, you know, instead of being transmitted by a tick bite, the vector insect that spreads malaria is the mosquito. And the different bacteria that it infects people and other animals with are from the plasmodium family. In 2016, malaria caused an estimated 216 million diagnosed clinical episodes. Wow. Worldwide, yeah. And 445,000 deaths worldwide. That's huge. It is. About 90% of deaths in 2016 were in sub-Sahara Africa, and the groups most affected were uh, young children who have not yet developed uh, partial immunity to malaria, uh, pregnant women whose immunity is decreased by pregnancy, especially during the first and second pregnancies, and travelers or migrants coming from areas with little or no malaria transmission who lack immunity. So that's why a, a lot of times they recommend you get vaccinated for it ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, also poverty, lack of knowledge, and little or no access to health care also contribute to malaria deaths worldwide. Okay. Well, fortunately, the number of malaria deaths has gone down in recent times. Uh, between 2010 and 2016, it went down about 25% to 445,000 per year. And then between two, uh, 2016 and 2018, it went down again from 445,000 deaths to 400, 405,000, which is another 9% improvement. And this is mainly attributed to malaria control through specific treatment and prevention programs. All right. Well, now... If somebody gets bitten by a mosquito that transmits that to them and they get malaria from it, how does it affect that person's body? And what are the long-term and the short-term side effects that they might experience? Well, first of all, the incubation period, which is the period of time that occurs before symptoms develop after you've been bitten and infected, is anywhere from seven to 30 days. And you know, typically, it's within a few weeks from being bitten. Mm-hmm. Uh, long delays between exposure and development of symptoms can result in misdiagnosis or delayed diagnosis because of reduced clinical suspicion by the healthcare provider. Uh, sometimes, uh, some types of malaria parasites can actually lie dormant in your body for up to a year. Wow. Yeah. And that's potentially disastrous because malaria is a curable disease if it's diagnosed and treated promptly and correctly. Uh, but it can be deadly if you wait too long. So, you know, malaria can be broken down into two categories of disease. Uncomplicated, which is where you have no symptoms or just mild symptoms, and complicated or severe, which includes severe disease and even death. So the most common signs and symptoms with malaria that, with malaria that are seen early on and are more on the mild side include fever, chills, sweats, headaches, nausea and vomiting, body aches, and fatigue. And some people that have malaria experience cycles or stages of malaria attacks. And attack, you know, includes three stages. And it starts with the cold stage, which includes shivering and chills, followed by the hot stage, which includes uh, fever, headaches, and vomiting, and even seizures in young children. 
And then finally, the sweating stage, which includes sweats, a return to normal temperature, and tiredness. Now, when malaria progresses and becomes more severe, a whole lot of damage can be done, especially to the body's vital organs and blood. There's what's called cerebral malaria, where it affects the brain. And this can result in abnormal behavior, impairment of consciousness, seizures, coma, or other neurologic abnormalities. Uh, neurologic defects can persist following cerebral malaria too, and these are especially in children. And you know, it includes uh, trouble with movements, palsies, speech difficulties, deafness, and even blindness. Uh, the cardiovascular system can eventually collapse, resulting in low blood pressure. Acute kidney injury is another problem that can result from malaria. And in addition, the lungs can become extremely inflamed, resulting in acute respiratory distress syndrome where oxygen exchange is inhibited. And then, you know, in the blood, you can see severe anemia due to what's called hemolysis, which is destruction of the red blood cells. Uh, this hemolysis can also cause hemoglobin to be dumped into the urine, which is not good. Uh, there can also be abnormalities in blood clotting and what's called hyperparasitemia, which is when you have more than 5% of the red blood cells infected by malaria parasites. Wow. Yeah. So finally, I can't stress enough that severe malaria is a medical emergency and should be treated urgently and aggressively. All right. Well, what kind of treatment is used for something like that? If somebody goes to their doctor or to the hospital, they find they have malaria, what would they do with them? Well, you know, in order to treat malaria, it needs to be properly diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And the only way to confirm that someone has malaria is by performing certain blood tests, which show uh, the presence of the parasite in the blood to confirm that you have it, which type of malaria parasite is causing your symptoms, and if your infection is caused by a parasite resistant to certain drugs so that you know which medication to use. Now, there's also other blood tests that can be ordered, which can help determine whether the disease is causing any serious complications to vital organs in the blood, like I just went over. But the treatment for malaria is basically various anti-malarial drugs that work against the parasite in various ways. You know, there's quite a few, so I'm not going to, you know, go into each one, but you can easily find out about these by going to various medical websites like the Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, or the Mayo Clinic website. Right. Okay. Now, if somebody has malaria, other than going to their doctor and getting an anti-malarial medication, is there anything else that they can do to speed up their recovery or improve their body so that it can fight things off? Well, you know, since the medications that are used to treat malaria have quite an array of side effects too, including loss of appetite, weakness, loss of immunity, intestinal problems, depression, and liver problems, there actually are some home-based remedies that you can take to help alleviate the symptoms. Okay. So, you know, these include, and I'm, you know, I'm just going to go list them here, um, powdered cinnamon, fresh lemon and lime juice fresh ginger, holy basil leaves, and grapefruit, which happens to contain a natural quinine-like substance. And it you know, just so happens that the primary medications used to treat malaria contain quinine and artemisin. Wow. It sounds like you could take all of those ingredients and make a breakfast drink from them. Yeah. 
I mean, it's like basil's the only one that probably wouldn't fit, but that wouldn't be that bad necessarily with the grapefruit and the cinnamon and the other things that were listed there, which I don't remember right now, but they would all be something you could put into a drink. That's true. Now, we're going to go off onto something that a lot of people have never heard of, which is another condition called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. It sounds like a song by Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh, Rocky Mountain Way. Yep. Yeah. So that's Rocky the ro- Top Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. See, there's a whole bunch that are like that, but this is not a melodical or pleasant thing. This is something that can be pretty serious. So what is it and how do you get it? Well, Rocky Mountain spotted fever is similar to Lyme disease in that it's also a bacterial disease caused by a tick bite. Uh, The bacteria that causes it is different from the ones that cause Lyme disease. This one is called Rickettsia rickettsii. And it's been reported in most of the mainland mainland states in the United States with over 60% of the cases occurring in just five states. And those are North Carolina, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Missouri. And over the last several years, it has become increasingly common in certain areas of Arizona. So we actually have one of our relatives in North Carolina that contracted this not too long ago. Right. Recall. Uh, So, you know, if an infected tick attaches itself to your skin, it takes about six to 10 hours for it to feed on your blood to transmit the infection. And that's much faster than the tick associated with Lyme, which takes about 36 to 48 hours. Um, You know, what makes this frustrating is that you may never see or feel the tick, you know, on you since they're so small. Mm -hmm. And just like Lyme disease, it cannot be spread from person to person. But, you know, one other major thing that differentiates it from Lyme disease is that it's, you know, if it's not treated within the first five days of symptoms, it can be rapidly fatal. Wow. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, then yeah. you should definitely not mess around with this one. No. Now, even though Rocky Mountain spotted fever causes many people to c- become ill within the first week after infection, the actual signs and symptoms may not appear for up to 14 days. And these are pretty nonspecific and you know can mimic the signs and symptoms of other illnesses. And they include a high fever, chills, severe headache, muscle aches, nausea and vomiting, and confusion or other neurological changes. But just like Lyme disease, the thing to look for is a very distinctive rash. The Rocky Mountain spotted fever rash is red and non-itchy, and it usually shows up first on your wrists and ankles, and then it could spread in both directions down into the palms of your hands and the soles of your feet, as well as up your arms and legs to your torso. And the rash usually appears about two to five days after the initial signs and symptoms begin. Unfortunately, about 10% of people who become infected with Rocky Mountain spotted fever never develop a rash, and that makes diagnosing it really difficult. The early rash is what's called maculopapular, which includes small, flat, pink, non-inchy spots called macules. Mm -hmm. And then the later rash is called petechial or petechiae, which are red to purple spots that don't usually, you know, you don't usually see until day six or later after the onset of symptoms. So this is considered a sign of progression to severe disease. So every attempt should be made to begin treatment before petechiae actually develop. Okay. Now what makes Rocky Mountain spotted fever very dangerous is the fact that it can damage the lining of your smallest blood vessels. 
causing them to leak or form clots. And this can also result in inflammation of the brain, which again is encephalitis, uh, which can cause confusion, seizures, and delirium. Uh, it can also lead to inflammation of the heart and lungs, which can cause heart failure or lung failure in severe cases. Uh, it can damage the blood vessels of the kidneys, potentially leading to kidney failure. Also, serious infection in the small blood vessels of the extremities, potentially leading to gangrene and amputation. And also death, since untreated Rocky Mountain spotted fever historically has an 80% death rate. Wow. So again, it's vital that you get this diagnosed and diagnosed quickly and treated quickly. Okay. So if somebody does get it diagnosed quickly or maybe even not so quickly, but not where the point it's going to be fatal, are there any effective treatments that people can get? Yes. And again, just like Lyme disease, the only recognized effective treatment for Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever is antibiotics. Um, doxycycline is the treatment of choice for people of all ages. And the CDC emphasizes that delay of treatment and use of antibiotics other than doxycycline increases the risk of patient death. Ooh. It's on their website. Now, a pregnant woman or someone who has a life-threatening allergy to doxycycline should consult an infectious disease specialist where they will likely prescribe another antibiotic such as chloramphenicol. Now, you know, as far as alternative medicine approaches, I'm not aware of any for Rocky Mountain spotted fever except for maybe some homeopathic remedies for prevention, which I believe there are also some for Lyme and malaria. Okay. And, you know, there's also, I'm sure there's some for some of the symptoms of it too. Just like the other two that we've covered, you know, these are potentially serious medical conditions. And in this case, it could be life-threatening. So you need to work with a medical professional and possibly an infectious disease specialist that has experience with this. Also follow the same prevention and tick removal guidelines that I gave earlier for Lyme for this and all other tick-caused diseases. Okay. All right. So this is something that people need to be aware of, especially if they're in those states where the ticks are more prevalent and where these diseases seem to crop up a lot more often. Now, is there anything else you'd like to say on this topic before we end? No, but I had no idea that, uh, especially Rocky Mountain spotted fever was so dangerous. I just thought it was, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm so glad that that was found on uh, our young relative and handled quickly with antibiotics. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, good. Well, we've covered all sorts of critters and bugs and things the last few weeks. Now we're going to shift off of that. And since the next episode is going to be airing the week right before New Year's and people will be kind of getting over the holidays and all the crap that they've been eating for, for the last several weeks, we're going to try and help with that. And the first episode we're going to do is going to help people get back on the right path in letting them know how to avoid hidden sugars. We did go over this to some extent when we went over the book Sugar Blues, but I want to go into it a little bit more depth because sugar has a huge effect on weight loss and health and other things that are going on in the body. And there's a lot of sugar that's added to a lot of foods with different names that people won't necessarily recognize. And there are certain sweeteners that are good, certain sweeteners that are not good. We've gone over that where we're going to just focus on the hidden sugars, which ones that people aren't going to necessarily 
be looking for or seeing or easy ways that they can tell whether they should avoid certain foods or what they can get as an alternative. We're going to do that. And then after that, the next week, we're going to go into a topic which a lot of people have maybe heard about and that might be considering as far as a way of losing the weight they've put on over the holidays. And that is what's the difference between things like keto and paleo, because those are not exactly the same thing. So if people want to look at different ways of approaching their diet, we're going to distinguish that to some extent for them. So we're going to get into the dietary thing instead of the musculoskeletal ones that I had mentioned we were going to do, we'll do that afterwards, but it'll be more applicable for people to be dealing with dietary stuff and sugar and diets and weight loss and things like that at the beginning of the year. So that's what's going to be coming up next. Okay. Sounds like a good choice. Yep. So everybody have a great holiday and we'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week. Bye.